Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews We've looked at the events before the crucifixion. In chapter 15, we saw the conspiracy to kill Jesus in verse 1. The confusion over the charges against Jesus in verses 2 through 5. The custom of letting a prisoner go in verse 6. The choice that people have to make between verses 7 and 14. The chastening in verse 15. The contempt in verses 16 through 20. And now Mark will introduce the cross bearer. Simon. The Cyrene in verse 21. By the way, over the next four weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday, we're going to consider the events during the crucifixion in verses 22 through 27 and then following the crucifixion in verses 38 through 47. This week, our passage introduces us to a stranger who's enlisted to carry the cross of Christ in verse 21. A cup that is offered before the cross in verses 22 through 23. The clothing below the cross in verses 24 and 25. And then the citation over the cross in verse 26. It was Martin Luther who famously said, No man understands the scriptures until he becomes acquainted with the cross. He also said, Quote, the cross alone is our theology. John MacArthur wrote, the cross is proof of both the immense love of God and the profound wickedness of sin, unquote. The cross has this strange effect of producing both comfort and discomfort. Some of you are acquainted with the cross of Calvary and some are less familiar John Piper in his book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die, begins in the opening chapter with this statement, quote, the most important question of the 21st century is, why did Jesus come and die? To see this importance, we must look beyond human causes. The ultimate answer to the question, who killed Jesus, is God did. It's a staggering thought. Jesus was his son, but the whole message of the Bible leads us to that conclusion, unquote. So we begin with the stranger carrying the cross. Look at verse 21. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Our knowledge of Simon the Cyrene comes from three verses. Luke chapter 23, verse 26. Matthew chapter 27, verse 32. 
and here in Mark's gospel in verse 21. Luke's gospel reads this way, quote, as they led Jesus away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. The Roman custom of execution usually required that the condemned prisoner carry his own cross to the place of execution. The Romans typically in the first century, wherever you were, and if you found yourself under capital punishment, they would find the longest route possible in order to make an impression upon the locals. Ibor Powell writes, and I quote, four soldiers formed a square in the middle of which the accused was made to carry the cross. Another soldier walked ahead of the group carrying a board which was written the crime for which the man was about to die. Other soldiers kept the crowd at a distance to prevent a last minute rescue by his friends or for the condemned man. Simon apparently arrives at this precise moment when Jesus could no longer drag his cross. I'm not a film clip guy and I don't normally show clips, but this morning I want to take about a 65 or 70 minute brief look from Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, where he dramatizes this particular event. Watch closely. you to pay close attention to the spear point that the Romans were carrying. It's going to be important in just a moment. Anne Myers writes, there's something deeply disturbing about a person having to carry the instrument of his own death. It's like carrying the rope that's going to hang him or someone sharpening the axe that will chop off his own head. Jesus is not allowed to have a moment of peace before his death because the reminder of his death literally presses upon his shoulder, unquote. Jesus has already been brutally beaten. He's been brutally lashed and either too weak or too slow. The Roman soldier picks a stranger from the crowd. 
What the film doesn't portray is how the Romans would do that. Now, you have to understand something for the observant Jew. This is a feast day. This is the Passover. This is the day of preparation. You can't carry a burden on the preparation day or on a Sabbath day without breaking the law, according to the Jewish traditions. And we see Simon compelled to carry the cross. Now, if you look in verse 21, where it says, then they compelled a certain man. That word compel is an interesting word in the original language and in that culture and society because it meant to press a person into service in an involuntary way. In the ancient world, the Roman soldier, if he needed to press a citizen into service or another person into service, They would come along the crowd and they would pick a person. They had a Roman spear and the spear was beaten in the shape of a Celtic leaf. It was double sided. It came to a wicked point. It was completely, completely razor sharp and it was attached to the end of a pole. And the Roman soldier would take the flat end of the spear and he would impress it upon the person's shoulder so that the razor sharp edge would be right next to your neck. And when you were pressed into service, you couldn't really say no. You could hardly refuse. And Simon is pressed into service. What does the Roman soldier see in his eyes? Does he see anger or bitterness or confusion or compassion? What does he see and why does the Roman soldier pick him? And why at this time and why at that particular moment? Cyrene, by the way, was a large port city in North Africa. As a matter of fact, it was a large port in what's now modern Libya. It was a Greek colony, but it had a substantial population of Jewish people. As a matter of fact, Cyrenian Jews had such a large contingent of worshipers that they had their very own synagogue in Jerusalem, according to Acts chapter 6, verse 9. This Synagogue, by the way, according to Eusebius, was destroyed by a band of marauding Arabs in the fourth century. But Simon has made the long journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He's pressed into service. He's coming to celebrate the Passover lamb. He has no idea. He has no idea that he's going to play an important role in the Passover lamb's execution. We're not told whether or not he planned the pilgrimage. We're not told whether or not he brought his family. But Mark mentions the name of two of his children who seem to have been well known in the church at Rome. Alexander and Rufus are mentioned in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, and also in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. When Paul ends his letter to the Romans, he gives greeting to both Alexander and Rufus. We're left with the impression that Simon's humiliating experience is going to lead to the conversion of his entire family. And that's what will often happen when you meet the Lamb. When you carry your cross, Gill writes, one of the most profound paradoxes of Christianity is found in the fact that the one who was not able to carry his own cross is the one who enables us to carry ours. 
One of the things that I would encourage you to ask the text. Is he a willing bearing burden bearer? Is he an unwilling burden bearer? All of the evidence seems to indicate that he's reluctant. So what does this mean? And look at the text because there's a little tiny indication. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he's coming out of the country and passing by. What does that mean? Simon is there by God's plan and and God's providence. Remember, you're a Christian and Christians don't believe in luck. Christians believe that luck is what a fool calls it when God gives them a break. There is a plan, a purpose, an orchestration that's beginning to take place. We believe a sovereign God orchestrates our comings and our goings. And so Simon carrying the cross, being pressed into service is no coincidence. Now, there are lots of reasons why I'm going to suggest to you he would have absolutely positively hated this. Number one, carrying a cross rendered the person ceremonially unclean to participate in in the services. Every single rabbi watching at that particular moment, as they see the blood spatter of Jesus being spattered onto him as he clings to the cross and he begins to carry the cross, he is breaking the law. Carrying a cross is difficult. Scholars debate whether a full cross is being used or a cross beam is being used. Let me give you a little lesson in cross etiquette 101. The cross was two separate beams. The cross beam was called the patibulum. The beam buried in the ground was called the stipes, S-T-I-P-E-S, In the Roman culture, they would dig a hole and they would dig the hole deep and they would drop the stipus in the ground. If Jesus and then Simon are carrying the patipulum, which is the cross beam, they would have been dragging it. But don't picture a little 10 pound or 20 pound piece of wood. We're talking about a beam that probably weighs between 150 and 200 pounds. We're not even sure how far he drags the beam. But the patibulum would have been placed on the ground. They would have taken the victim and they would lash him or her to the patibulum. Then they would place the nails in the wrists and they would pound them into the patibulum. And then they would lash the patibulum to the stipus and then drop it in the ground. And the weight would cause tendon and muscle to literally tear from your wrist. If Simon is there for morning prayer, it's nine o'clock, it's nine o'clock in the morning and carrying the cross is obviously going to interrupt his religious schedule. John Stott writes, quote, one might say every Christian is both Simon of Cyrene and a type of Barabbas. Like Barabbas, we escape the cross for Jesus died in our place. Like Simon of Cyrene, we carry the cross for he calls us to take it up and follow him. 
I want you to put yourself back in time and space. And I want you to place yourself in the crowd as he's carrying the cross and begin to look at Jesus just for a moment with the eyes of Simon. What does Simon see? He sees a man covered in blood. He sees a man with a strange, twisted configuration, a a crown of thorns on his head. He sees a man who, before the day is over with, is going to be pressed on that cross. And so what do you suppose he felt? Is it compassion that's welling up inside of him? Is it confusion? Is it revulsion? Is it anger? Is it bitterness? And then all of a sudden the Roman soldier meets him eye to eye and he presses presses the spear on his shoulder and says, you're it. We're not given the details. We have every reason to believe that he's going to carry it for a distance. We have every reason to believe that it may have been even as far as the place of execution. You know, there's a story that's told when. Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier and became the first black athlete ever to participate in major, major league baseball at that level in the major leagues. He wasn't always welcome. There was deep, profound resentments and hatreds and prejudices, and he had a tough time of it. As a matter of fact, he relates that at one point in his career, he had made several errors in his own stadium and people were hissing and booing. And then people began to throw things at Jackie Robinson and he began to just lower his head and he began to sob silently. And then he began to sob openly. And Pee Wee Reese, the great, great shortstop, walked over to to Jackie Robinson and he put his arms around him. And the crowd stopped. And that's exactly what Simon has done. He picks up the burden. He picks up the cross. By the way, does he linger? Does he stay? Does he see the sights and the sounds? Does he hear Jesus pray? Does he decide that he is going to stay for the duration? Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. It's interesting. Paul uses words of familiarity and deep affection. How does he know Simon's wife and how does he know Simon's children? We have every reason to believe that this event would change him forever. It will change his wife. It will change his family. And that's often what happens when you come into a right relationship with God in Christ. You receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But guess what? Your wife, your your husband, your children become the benefactors, if you will. And remember in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said to his, his own disciples, whoever will come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. And remember when we looked at that particular passage, I asked Asked you the question, where are you going, Jesus? Where is picking up my cross and following you going to lead me? 
it's going to lead to the place of execution. By the way, to carry our cross means that we're willing to pick up the instrument of our own death. That's what every single person did when they picked up their cross. The day was not going to come to an end unless you were on it. To deny yourself isn't limited to just a denial of a TV program or pleasure or position or passion. But it means to turn from the most wicked thing about you. And that's your selfishness. That's your wickedness. It means to turn from self. But it has to mean way more than turning from yourself. It has to mean turning to the Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So to pick up the cross was an invitation to an execution. And following Jesus meant a journey that would end up at Calvary's hill, the place where we would die, where our passions would die, where our reputations would die, where our possessions would go away. We no longer get to live for ourselves. No wonder Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's not me who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who lives loved me and died for me. Whatever else crucifixion with Christ means, it must mean death to self and the separation from the reigning power of the old sinful life and the freedom to experience the power of the resurrection by faith in your own life. When we forget our, about ourselves, we forget The way I would put it is this way. When we forget about ourselves, it gives us the opportunity to begin to remember the things that matter most. Socrates said, know yourself. Marcus Aurelius said, control yourself. Other oriental sages said, give yourself. The famous 21st or 20th century philosopher Archie Bunker said, stifle yourself. But Jesus said, deny yourself. You know, a horse can't go anywhere unless it's harnessed and a car can't go anywhere without fuel. A life becomes great the moment it is focused and dedicated and disciplined. Harry Truman said in reading about the lives of great men, I found that the first victory they won was over themselves. Self-discipline with all of them came first, unquote. And so your journey with Jesus will never be complete until you pick up the cross and you begin to understand what it means. Remember what it means so far. It means the perversion of sin. It means the radiance of God's love. Carrying a cross is embarrassing. It was limited to condemned criminals. It's inconvenient. It's all of those things. Warren Wiersbe writes, when you consider all that our Lord had endured since his arrest, it is not surprising that his strength fails. Indeed, he could have called 10,000 angels, yet he willingly bore the sufferings on our behalf. There was a higher purpose behind the act. The victim carried the cross because he had been found guilty, but the Lord wasn't guilty. We are the guilty ones. And Simon carries that cross on our behalf. 
And so something else begins to come into view. Human beings are hopelessly self-centered by nature and by choice. We expect it from the unbeliever, but we don't expect it from the Christian. By the way, there, there are two words that should never be found together. Selfish, Christian. Those two words don't belong together. It would be like if I said, Christian stripper. What? What? Those two words don't belong together. Be careful when you say, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to pray. I don't want to work in the children's ministry. I don't want to help. I don't want to die to myself. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to. And then you fill in the blank. Forty years now, I've served the Lord. Four. Zero. And you know what I've discovered? That in all 40 years, every single moment of every single day, of every single week, of every single month, of every single year has been a constant battle against selfishness. And this is why the Bible says, take up your cross daily. You see, after a year... After two years, after 20 years, you would think that bearing the cross would become a little bit easier, but it's not true. It's difficult to deny yourself because we are wicked by nature and by choice. And also because our society teaches to love yourself, to pamper yourself, express yourself. You deserve a break today. One of the top selling books in America often has something to do with yourself or self-awareness or some self-serving theme. Dr. Paul Bitz was a guest on my radio program a few years back. He had written a book called The Cult of Self-Worship. In it, he wrote, modern psychology has become a religion in particular, a form of secular humanism based on the worship of self. And Dr. Paul Bitz rightly says that most of America worships at that altar. Have you heard this limerick? I'll say it in honor of the upcoming St. Patrick's Day, which I've never understood since he's an Italian person. But here it goes. There once was a nymph named Narcissus who thought himself very delicious. So he stared like a fool in his face in a pool and his folly today is still with us. That's what narcissism is. You stare into the deep reflection of yourself. No wonder Paul will later warn Timothy, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient, unholy, unthankful. Now look at verse 22. And they brought him to the place Golgotha. Which is translated the place of the skull. The word Golgotha, by the way, is an Aramaic word. And so since 
Mark is writing to a Roman group who have some understanding of Latin because that's their primary language, who have some understanding of Greek because that's the trade language, but they have little or no understanding of Aramaic. He decides to translate it. It is Calvarium in Latin, Calvary. Did you know that you go to Skull Chapel? Skull. Now, I need you to understand what this means. We're left with the impression that the Roman occupiers selected this place as the place of execution. But remember, that's what it meant. This is the place where you go to die. And wouldn't it be amazing if that becomes something that our church is noted for? Calvary is the place where you go to die. Calvary is the place where you go to die to yourself in order to live for Christ. Calvary is the place where you give up on yourself. It's interesting. Our next door neighbors have at the front of their blazing entry, believe in yourself. And here we should we should put on the front of ours. Don't do it. Don't do it. You can't trust yourself. As a matter of fact, the Bible doesn't say believe in yourself. It says deny yourself and believe in Jesus. Don't trust yourself. Trust the Lord. There's a huge debate over the place of execution. There are two sites that claim this distinction. When you go to Jerusalem, there is the place of the Holy Sepulchre, which says that this is the particular place near where Jesus died. And then there's another place called Gordon's Calvary or the Garden Tomb. There's a limestone hill in the shape of a skull. And it makes perfect sense that the skull becomes the symbol in almost every culture and every society for death. Remember what the Bible says, the soul that sins it shall surely die. It's appointed once for a human being to die and then the judgment. It's interesting to me how many scholars will devote page after page of of a discussion of where Golgotha is. And they devote only a few lines to why Golgotha is. The writer of Hebrews sums it up in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have become partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus comes to the place of death to destroy the works of the devil and your fear of death. The Bible says precious in the sight of God are the death of his saints. You know, some people wonder, is the air poisonous? If I breathe it in and out for 80 years or 90 years, will it finally take its toll on me? It's not the air that's killing you, unless, of course, you live downtown. (laughs) It's sin that brings us to that place of deprivation. And so, we discover something. Jesus will die to deliver all men from the fear and the bondage of death. But look at verse 23. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. 
By the way, the purpose of giving wine mixed with myrrh was to act like a sedative. It was the ancient version of a drug-induced dulling of the senses. Some Bible scholars suggest that there was a group of Jerusalem women who would take wine, they would drug it to myrrh, with myrrh. It was offered to condemned malefactors. It was a, a token of a charity. It was a sign of, of, of kindness. The intention was to deaden the sense of the, of the pain. But look what the text says. But he did not take it. Why? Why would Jesus decline the medicine? Why would Jesus decline the medicine that's going to take the edge off the pain? Most of us wouldn't. Give me morphine. Give me more. Yeah, whatever the legal limit is, just do whatever it takes to make the pain go away. But why does Jesus refuse it? Because he's determined to exercise full consciousness as he bears the sin of the world. But I'm going to give you yet another reason. I think that that's one of the reasons, but I think that there's another reason. And the reason is the promise that he had made just a few hours earlier. Do you remember when he was in the upper room and he said, take and drink all of you. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting punishment. And they drank. But Jesus also said that he would refuse to drink the fruit of the vine until he feasted with them in the kingdom. He's going to keep a promise. Do you realize that Jesus keeps his promises? No matter how small, no matter how insignificant that you might think, you know, you might say something offhand. I'll say it to the grandchildren. Well, you know, after dinner, we'll go get ice cream. And it's like it's burned forever inside of their brain. You promised, Grandpa. You said you were going to do this and you've got to make it good. Guess what? Jesus Never, ever goes back on his promises. He will keep every one and all of them will be sure. Twice Jesus will be offered drink here before the cross and on the cross. In a few hours, according to John chapter 19, verse 28, he will say those very famous words, I thirst. And you'll remember that they will press a sponge With vinegar. This is not the fruit of the vine. This is the spoiled consequences of wine that's gone bad. And look at the clothing below the the cross. In verse 24, and when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. By the way, a Jewish man in the first century typically had five articles of clothing. A Jewish man would have an inner garment. It was like, well, forgive me, guys. It was like a dress, okay? It was like a long robe. It would be fitted over the head. There would be out places for, the, for your arms. There would be a girdle or a belt that would encircle the waist. There would be sandal or there would be a type of shoe. There would be a turban. Sometimes there would be an outer robe like here with Jesus. And the soldiers are casting lots for the remaining possessions of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to think about that. Jesus 
mercifully, he's hanging, if you will, from the cross. But what is under his direct view? It is those men gambling for the last possessions that he has. One will get a robe. Others will get articles of clothing. In that culture and society, soldiers would supplement their income by plundering whatever they could from the condemned prisoner. And one will get his turban. And one will get his inner robe. And one will get his girdle. And one will get his shoes. I want you to think about that for just a moment. What do the Roman soldiers get from the cross? Clothes. But it should cause each and every one of you to ask a different kind of a question. What are you getting from the cross? What is it that you're receiving? Because if you're not receiving the message that the cross renders possessions useless... And you'll remember something else. Other gospel writers tell us that Jesus's mother is right nearby, but the soldiers don't show any compassion towards her. If you're killed in an accident today, the police officers are going to say, these are your loved one's effects. If I drop dead, there's going to be a watch and there is going to be my cool, trusty magnifying glass which I take with me everywhere, and a pocket knife. Yes, you can take the Italian out of Italy, but you can't take the Italy out of the Italian. Dead men don't need things. And so they gamble. And look what it says now. It was the third hour and they crucified him. Mark reckons time according to Roman time. In the Roman culture, the first hour is the moment after daybreak. And so the first hour is between six and seven. The second hour is between seven and eight. The third hour is between eight and nine. And it's the third hour and they crucified him. This is going to be important because we're going to learn more about the hours later. As a matter of fact, take a quick peek at verses 33 and 34. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It's at the ninth hour that Jesus Christ, Eloi, Eloi, Laba Sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 24 and 25, Mark, Peter, mercifully says to the Roman people, three words, they crucified him. They don't need the dirty details because every Roman listening to this gospel would have known and experienced the horror of crucifixion. But we have to say at least a couple of thoughts. Because again... There's very few sentences in the whole Bible that better reveals the depths of man's depravity and the wonder of God's love. They crucified him. Human beings reject and put God's son to death. But it 
demonstrates his indescribable love that he wouldn't spare his own son. He allows his son to die for our sins. And if you know nothing else about the cross and you can't tell your family and your friends that this is what the cross means, it means it's a story about the love of God. It's also a story about the sinfulness of human beings. Before I became a Christian, growing up during the Jesus movement in the late 60s and the early 70s, I was accosted by countless people who came up to me and said, God loves you, Jesus loves you, God loves you, Jesus loves you. And I got sick of it and I said, how do you know that? And they would tell me all kinds of things. Well, because, you know, I believe that. So? Well, the Bible says so. Well, I don't believe the Bible. People would say over and over again, God loves you. God loves you. And I would say, so what? Who cares? Prove it. One day a person said to me, God loves you. I said, how do you know? And he said, you know, I was on LSD and I had this vision of God. And he's pure love. And I went, I don't believe you. So one day someone said to me, God loves you. And I said, how do you know? And he says, here in his love in that way, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see? Do you understand that a real Jesus came into a place in time and space? He lived the perfect life that you could never live. He died on the cross for your sins. God is demonstrating his real love in a real way in time and space and history. And I was overwhelmed. And look at the citation over the cross. Look what it says in verse 26. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. Much has been made over the fact that Mark fails to give the full superscription. And all the gospels give a different inscription. Some have argued that this is a hopeless contradiction. And they'll go, look at Matthew 27, 37. Look, look at Luke 23, 38. Look at John 19, 19. Look at Mark 15. And I say, what you call a contradiction, I call proof positive that the four eyewitnesses aren't relying on each other's testimony, but each gives a full and accurate account of what really happened. How can you miss the point? Remember what the Romans did. They named the name Jesus of Nazareth. They put the accusation, he is the king of the Jews. Remember, the religious leaders came to Pilate and said, take it down. Take that down. Why? Can't you put something else on there? Can't you put, he said, I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate famously said, What I've written, I've written. You have to understand something. I'm going to argue that Peter's recounting of the events as told with to Mark have way more to do with what's taking place than just simply the superscription. All the spectators would have seen and understood the accusation at a glance. It was written in Latin, the the, the language of jurisprudence of court rulings of condemnation it was written in greek which is the language of the merchant it would have been written in hebrew the language that the people and the passers-by would have seen and it said 
Jesus of Nazareth. He is the king of the Jews. Venerable Bede, who wrote in 670 to 730, he was the most eminent English historian. He was the most important theologian of his generation. He wrote in the 7th century A.D., quote, This title was fitly placed over Christ's head because although he was crucified in weakness for us, yet he shone with the majesty of a king above his cross. The title over the cross tells us that he reigns from that cross. Pilate was restrained from making any alteration in the title so that it should mean nothing less than this. What an amazing insight. In spite of the Jewish rejection, in spite of the Roman miscarriage of justice, Jesus remains forever the king. Billy Graham said, in the cross of Christ, I see three things. First, a description of man's sin. Second, the overwhelming love of God. Third, the only way of salvation. You see, when your husband, your wife, when your grandchild, when your sons, when your daughters come to you and they say, tell me about the cross. You should be able to speak of God's love. And you should be able to speak of man's sin. And you should be able to speak of God's salvation, of forgiveness and reconciliation. It should serve for you both the beginning and the middle and the end of the conversation of Calvary. It's the place of death. It's the place where we go so that we don't live any longer. It's the place where we go where we can live for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, when we consider the cross, Lord, when we begin to understand that when we see the cross around a person's neck, when we see the cross hung in a particular and conspicuous place, when we see visions of the cross over and over and over again, Lord, I pray that we would always be reminded of our great sin. Lord, I pray that we would always be reminded of your great love. And Lord, I pray that we would always be aware of the great salvation that's been wrought in Jesus whose death on that cross and whose subsequent resurrection means that he's alive forever to change us forever. Lord, I pray for that person again who finds himself or herself in an empty place, in a dark place, in a wicked place, in a place estranged from you. Lord, I pray that they would see with fresh eyes the cross of Calvary. Lord, I pray that with a tender heart, they would ask themselves this question. Am I willing to take up my cross? Am I willing to repent of my selfishness and my sin? Am I willing to embrace Jesus as my Lord and my Savior? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.